Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday the 13th. I don't know whether that bothers you or not. I I hesitate to admit that I probably would have a little bit of a like a little twinge about getting on an airplane. I would still do it, but it is Friday the 13th. It's Friday the 13th in the year 2020. So what could possibly go wrong? So does that kind of thing bother you, Benjamin Wittes? By the way, our special guest is Benjamin Wittes from Lawfare. The fact that um, it's Friday the 13th. Well, so I didn't notice that it was Friday the 13th until you just pointed it out. No. But now that you've pointed it out, and I would say normally, no, it doesn't bother me at all. But it is tw- the, the combination of Friday the 13th and 2020 is, you know, if if there were ever an unlucky day, it must be today. I, uh, I I should have before we started this. I should have gone and, and checked what the status of the of, of the meteor. Remember that meteor was going to come right past the Earth right around now. Did it all? Did it already miss us, or we still got a shot at it? I don't know, sweet meteor yeah. of death. This is your moment. Yeah. So uh, before we get get started, um, this story. I went to bed last night having read this the lead story in the Washington Post, and 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 frankly, it just haunted me. And like the first three paragraphs, you know, this David Nakamura story. On Thursday, six American service members were killed in a helicopter crash during a peacekeeping mission in Egypt. Tropical storm Etta made landfall in North Florida, contributing to severe flooding. The number of Americans infected with the coronavirus continued at a record-setting pace, sending the stock market tumbling. At the White House, President Trump spent the day as he has most others this week, sequestered from public view, tweeting grievances, falsehoods, and misinformation about the election results and about Fox News's coverage of him. Neither he nor his aides briefed reporters on the news of the day or reacted to Democratic leaders who accused Republicans of imperiling the pandemic response by refusing to accept reality over the election results. And here's the kicker paragraph. The contrast between the nation grappling with an ongoing global crisis and a president consumed with his own political problems highlighted a fundamental contradiction at the heart of Trump's assault on the integrity of the U.S. election system. He is leveraging the power of his office in a long shot bid to stay in the job while ignoring many of the public duties that come with it. You know, if there was ever a man, if, if there was ever just one of those moments where you had to make that fundamental choice, choosing country over party, this would be it. And maybe that's what's kind of so depressing because you're seeing that this is the moment and it's not happening. It's almost like he doesn't care about anything except himself. <laughs> it is. It, that, could, that could possibly be true, but we have to it, give him a shot. Right? Yeah, we've, I mean, you, you, you want to give him the opportunity to grow in the office, to you, you, you keep hoping today is going to be the day that, as Van Jones once put it, he becomes president, mm. and yet it never happens. No, it, it hasn't. So I started my newsletter today by saying we really should be feeling better by now because the election's over, Trump's defeated, the rest of the world, even China, has acknowledged it. Basically, the only people who haven't acknowledged are Vladimir Putin and the Republican Party. And America, you know, seems like ready to turn the page, but here we are. It's Friday. Friday the 13th, and we're still being held hostage by this petulant, selfish, and delusional man who's at the batshit crazy stage of denial. I mean, tweeting out these crazy, crazy things, which I want to get to in just a moment, because you have a great piece about how hard it is to overturn an election. Before we do this, we do a little palate cleanser, because I think we, I started off too dark here, and I just could. Here's a little sound clip. Uh, Joe Scarborough featured it uh, this, this morning, and every voice you're about to hear 
is a Republican or a right-wing commentator from 2016. Every single voice you're about to hear is from November of 2016. Let's play this. You have people out there calling for recounts that are unsubstantiated based on no evidence. This was a legitimate election, mm-hmm. and no one should question the fact that Donald Trump is the president-elect. Hillary is on her, her sore loser tour, and now we have her going through recounts. You know what she needs to do? She needs to get over it. She lost. Yeah. Get out of the way and let Donald Trump be president. Do you think the Democrats are sore losers? Yeah, I do. The reality is they're a bunch of spoiled crybabies. Newsflash for many of the partisan Democrats and those in the mainstream media who continue to try to delegitimize President-elect Trump's uh, massive and historic win last month. The election's over. Hillary Clinton lost. You have to win 270 electoral votes to be elected president, and President-elect Trump actually got 306. This is all really just an effort to try to delegitimize the win. The left's going to lie. The left's going to be smirched. They're They're going to go crazy. They can't accept the election results, let alone the fact that he's actually going to solve problems. They have to decide whether they're going to interfere with him finishing his business, interfere with the peaceful transition, transfer of power to President-elect Trump and Vice President-elect Pence, or if they're going to be a bunch of crybabies and sore losers about an election that they can't turn around. This is America. We live in a democracy. Everybody, when they woke up in the morning, registered to vote, could go choose. So how about respecting the majority that also live here and their vote should count? Brian, they're saying it's rigged. But they have absolutely no evidence that it's rigged. I don't even think we should give him the time of day. Uh, also, he's about to win. And we know it's a matter of time uh, about to win Michigan officially. So that would put uh, Donald Trump over the top with over 300 electoral votes. It was a blowout. Uh, well, it was a blowout. I just wonder what these Democrats are doing, trying to convince their electoral uh, representatives not to vote the way the people want. There are six of them. Now there's these states. Let's have a recount. We believe in free speech. We believe in accepting winners and not being sore losers. They have no actual proof of voter fraud or any wrongdoing, and both the White House and the Wisconsin Elections Commission have both said zero evidence whatsoever. Now, what happened to the peaceful transition of power and supporting the incoming administration? I'm sorry. It's like we feel we've wandered into this permanent hall of mirrors, haven't we? You know, it's... uh... Almost unfair to hold people to things they said four (laughs) years ago, because they're actually being entirely consistent. They were uh, uh, saying exactly what was convenient for Donald Trump then, and they're saying exactly what is convenient for Donald Trump now. That That is the through line, which brings us to today, Friday the 13th. So Peter Navarro, who is the trade representative and an expert on everything, just ask him, he's an expert on everything, um, comes out and says they're planning on a second Trump term. Let's just play this. Uh, Maria, we're moving forward here at the White House uh, under the assumption that there will be a second uh, Trump term. Uh, I think it's really important before people's heads explode here to understand that what, what we seek here is verifiable ballots, certifiable ballots, and an investigation into what are growing numbers uh, of allegations of fraud under signed affidavits by witnesses. And my own view, looking at this election, uh, we we have what appears in some sense to be an immaculate deception. Oh, I bet he felt proud about that. Okay, so Benjamin Wittes, you wrote, so it has come to this. President of the United States is trying to overturn the results of a national election he unambiguously lost. With a combination of petulant whining, oh, say, it's a big. This is a good day for petulant. Uh, 
lining spiteful and flailing executive action and magic. No, it is ultimately not going to work, at least not if working is defined as allowing President Trump to maintain power in the face of the express voter will, but it is working better than I would have believed possible. Okay, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that we are more than a week after the last vote was cast, and a week and a half now, and it is clear who won the election. And when I say clear, I don't mean mostly clear. I don't mean a little bit clear. I don't mean, you know, it's coming into focus. I mean, we know the damn answer. Yeah. And the White House, in official statements, is denying that reality and, uh, and actively planning for at least uh, in appearance for a second term, both in its public statements. The Washington Post has reported that it is vetting political appointees for a second uh, for a second term. It has instructed agencies not to cooperate, at least not yet, with any transition. And so it is acting like there is uh, going to be a continuity of government. And by the way, Mike Pompeo, though people keep saying he was joking, said this uh, explicitly that they were planning for uh, you know a peaceful transition to uh, a, a second term of the Trump administration. And so if you had asked me um, a year ago, uh, would it be possible, for could you imagine a situation in which the president of the United States loses unambiguously his bid for re-election and nonetheless the formal organs of the White House uh, you know, act uh, as though that reality isn't reality and as though they are heading to a re-inauguration, I would have said, come now, don't be silly. And yet that is exactly what's happening. I think that's what's a little bit disconcerting. In over the last four years, we saw how challenging it was to fact check the president. Now we've moved on to a different phase where it's the reality check. We're having the ultimate reality check with the coronavirus, with the unambiguous re- uh, results from the election. And you have the president just defying reality. And and that's and that's what's extraordinary. And I was listening to a report this morning that the president is going to continue to refuse to concede. He will continue to push out bogus conspiracy theories. He will still find lawyers filing completely meritless lawsuits as long as he thinks the Republican Party is going to stand by him. And as of right now, overwhelmingly, Republicans are looking at this. And going, yeah, we're kind of okay with this. Yeah, there's a coronavirus that's, uh, you know, raging across the land. We have, you know, potential of real, you know, economic catastrophe coming, and the president is sulking in the White House. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it that, that's okay. Right. So there are a few things that are enabling this. Uh, one is that the president has spent a lot of time creating a zone of conversation in which truth is simply not a relevant variable. Uh, the second is hmm. that the, uh, you know, and so you, as a result of that, you, well can, you can say all kinds of things like that, you know, millions of Trump votes have disappeared, a proposition. It's not even for which there is no evidence. There is active evidence 
there, there's a lot of evidence that this vote was conducted in a, uh, you know, uh, mature, serious, rigorous fashion, and there are no substantial irregularities in any state. Uh, that's actually what the evidence shows. Yes. But you also have an environment in which large numbers of senior Republicans are, for whatever reasons, and I think that, that you know, you've talked about this endlessly and have thought, <laughs> thought more deeply about it than just about anybody. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, people with very few exceptions don't call him on it. And so the consequences of behaving this way are relatively minimal for him. And in fact, uh, you know, certain advantages accrue by behaving this way. And so the result is that, uh, you know, you can actually have uh, uh, him living in an alternate reality in which you know, he's preparing for a second term. And of course, he knows it's garbage. It's not, you know, it, it's not, he knows it's not going to happen. But half of the political world uh, has to play along or feels it has to play along with this uh, suspended animation in which we pretend that there is a contested election going on. There is no contested election going on. And it doesn't matter. Uh, how earnestly or faux earnestly Mitch McConnell says that it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly appropriate for the president to, you know, assert his uh, legal rights. And it's really rich to see Democrats who've spent time delegitimizing this presidency, uh, you know, call for respect for the people's right to vote. You know, people can do that all they want. There is a certain reality yeah, that is extrinsic to their feelings about it. Well, it's also interesting, you know, watching how these court cases have been, you know, move, moving ahead. They apparently won a relatively minor case in, in Pennsylvania. But in courtroom after courtroom, what they're discovering is that apparently Twitter claims don't necessarily hold up. And when judges press them, are you alleging um, fraud? Are you uh, alleging that something, you know, misconduct? And, and they all back off. So it's it is it is it is not happened. You actually said something that was very interesting that that the president that the trump has succeeded in creating i what was that i wanted to write it down creating a space in which truth is not relevant anymore and it, you know you think about the project that's been going on for the last four or five years this annihilation of truth where it's not just that you tell a lie it's that you get to a point where the actual reality doesn't doesn't trump whatever fantasy you you put out there and i mean we are we're seeing the the the, the consequence of something that's been going on for a very, very long time. And, you know, some of us worried, where is this heading? I mean, are people going to be able to lie and get away with it? It's actually almost beyond that. It, it's not that necessarily people even believe the lies. It's that the whether it's a lie or whether it's the truth is sort of bes beside the beside the fact, right? Well, so, uh, yeah, I think that's right. So it starts with lies. This is much bigger than a lie, by the way. Uh, it starts with lies. I you know, the president has told X thousand number of thousands of lies, right, in his presidency, um, this blizzard of lies, right? And then you create an ecosystem that uh, sometimes supports the lies, sometimes magnifies the lies, and always tolerates the lies. Um, so that's step one. It is a small step from the blizzard of lies 
to simply creating realities of your own. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on here, right? It's not that he's lying about the vote in Pennsylvania. It's that, though he is, it's that he's created an entire reality. And let's just describe that reality for a minute. That reality is one in which, first of all, he prevailed in the relevant states. He Mm -hmm. got more votes than Joe Biden did in the relevant states. Number two in this reality, by the way, there is zero evidence for this proposition. Uh, Number two, that uh, votes for Trump were discarded uh, in these states. Uh, By the way, he says we won big, right? So we're talking about tens of thousands, or in Michigan's case, hundreds of thousands of votes were discarded or created for Joe Biden. Well, let me just, yeah, the, this is the all tweets cap from yesterday. You know, report Dominion, this is the uh, voting machine company, deleted 2.7 million Trump votes nationwide. Data analysis finds 221,000 Pennsylvania votes switched from President Trump to Biden. 941,000 uh, Trump votes deleted. Okay, but this is completely bogus. His source on this is Chanel Rion, whatever, from one American network now. Now, I mean, how bad is this? You know, even the guys from National Review are saying it's appallingly bad. And you have the Department of Homeland Security issuing a rather remarkable statement, all in bold caps, saying there's no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. So this is just batshit crazy conspiracy. I just want to back up on all of this. But it's also then being echoed by people like, you know, Maria Bartiromo and Jonathan Turley is on Fox talking about this. That's the mind boggling thing that you come up and you just spew this completely bogus, insane theory. And people go, well, we need to think about that. We need to think about both sides. Teach the controversy, man. Um, Look, it is once you have conditioned people to accept a lot of lies. Yeah. It turns out to be a relatively small step yeah. to condition them to accept an entirely different reality. And that's what they are being asked to do right now. And a shocking number of them are doing it. You know, that's this is good. This is good stuff, by the way, Ben. Okay, so I never fully understood that quote from Voltaire um, un- until, until like, like you know, today, you know, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. You know, that's kind of like boilerplate stuff in the past. It's one of those quotes that you learn and you, 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 you cite. But, you know, that that is the thing is that we really are living in an era right now where you can make people believe absurdities. And it's, by the way, it's not Russian disinformation. This is the president of the United States who's pushing these absurdities. And so for the people who are going, oh, don't worry about it. Don't overreact. You shouldn't be too alarmed. You know, yeah, Joe Biden's going to be the president. But there is a price to be paid for making people believe absurdities. And this is this is this is the long term problem of all of this, because at the end of the day, he's not going to be president on January 20th. That's not going to happen. But. You will have what forty percent of the country who will believe absurdities, or or will be indifferent to whether or not the what is being said is 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 absurd. And that you know you real you, consequences. You quote Voltaire, but there's another authority on audacious lying that we should consult on this. Um, the the relevant passage reads. Um, 
the big lie in the big lie there is this, always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily and thus in the primitive simplicity of their minds they more readily fall victim to the big lie than the small lie since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehood it would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths and they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously so even though the facts which prove this may be so brought clearly to their minds they still doubt and waver and will continue to think that there may be some other explanation uh that is hitler in mein kampf oh my gosh i w- i was i was going back and forth between thinking it was going to be hitler or hannah arendt talking about hitler nope nope yeah. this is this is That's hitler him. i don't believe in in uh Nazi comparisons I'm not quoting Hitler to uh compare Trump to Hitler but Hitler is a unusually good authority on lying. Oh. So where do we go on this? So okay so he's not going to be able to overturn the election but uh, but and I think we agree on the on the long-term consequences. I think the 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 medium-term consequences uh, are also significant about not going ahead with the the transition. I think the the possible disruption of the distribution of the of the uh, pandemic vaccine uh, is a huge issue, and the the cynicism that it takes to do anything that would possibly jeopardize life saving vaccines is breathtaking. I mean, that's another thing that we we have accepted a level of political cynicism that is just really extraordinary that i think there used to be the fantasy that that in times of national emergency we would you know we wouldn't play political games we wouldn't be partisan there's a line that we would go up to but we wouldn't cross it and now it just sort of feels like yeah if 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 donald trump's feelings you know are going to be hurt then, then we're prepared to burn down america I, well I, so i i do think on this score there is a very good piece of news and it involves a name that we've gone 22 minutes into this podcast without mentioning which is Joe Biden um which is that somebody is actually acting like a president here yeah. and you know Biden has uh been you know for a guy who's accused of being a gaff machine which is not an unfair accusation uh he's been note perfect in his response to this he's responded you know more in sorrow than in anger he has not pounded his fists on the table about the fact that he's not getting intelligence briefings or that his transition team is not getting any cooperation from the incumbent administration he has uh i believe he has uh you know uh said made made public uh comments about the american servicemen killed in in the helicopter crash which at least mm-hmm. i don't haven't seen that that the president has done um you know we actually do have this concurrent modeling of what the presidency is supposed to look like and it is ironically from the president elect uh which uh the current president does not acknowledge as the president elect this is a 
This is a real problem, I think, for the Republicans who figure that they're going to be able they that they're going to be able to make a pivot at some point, and they'll acknowledge, and then you know everything will will work out relatively normally. I'm not sure at this point what their off ramp is. What's the moment in which it will be safe for them uh, to acknowledge Biden is the victor? If in fact Republicans have decided that Donald Trump is forever and that no one has any future in Republican politics if you ever anger them. And the one so, thing about Donald Trump is he has no loyalty. And it doesn't matter if you've been with him, you know, 99 consecutive times, if you break with him at the last moment. So, I mean, you know, for a lot of these guys, they may not be able to, you know, make, make a pivot until what, January 6th, January 7th. I don't know. So I, I've been wondering about this. So let's let's talk about a few specific dates yeah. and what happens on those dates. The first of them is November 20th, which is the day that absent some court intervention, which I really don't expect, the state of Georgia will certify that its electoral votes go to Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. So if you're, first of all, if you're Donald Trump, you cannot really win without Georgia. So what does Mitch McConnell do on November 20th? Yeah, that that would be there are a number of those dates. So right, the next one it, is November twenty third. Right, and and then I think Wisconsin's a little bit later. But there comes a date when every single state will have certified election results. Right, the last so, ma the last major date in that regard is December first. Um, and on December first, the last of the battleground states will have um will have certified their election results. So um. Uh, you know, the, um, the result is that on, uh, you know, by that date, it will be unambiguously the case that Joe Biden has, uh, the electoral votes he needs in order to well, be elected per perhaps, president. Perhaps. So, all, all, all you need for Mitch McConnell is, is if there's some pending litigation still going on. We just had a lawsuit, by the way, filed here in Wisconsin yesterday. That that actually asked the judge to throw out all the votes from Milwaukee County, Dane County, and Menominee County. Milwaukee and Dane being the most Democratic counties, Menominee County being overwhelmingly Native American. There's nothing subtle about this. So all you need to do is keep throwing right, keep throwing lost, keep lost throwing out the black votes. Well, that's true. Okay, so so there you have that date, and then you have December eighth, which is the so-called safe harbor day date where you basically, you know, that's that's the date by which you need to resolve all the possible controversies about the Electoral College. You would assume that by then Mitch McConnell would say there's the off ramp. And if it's not December 8th, December 14th, right, that's the day when they actually vote, when all the electors get together in the states and they vote. So we've moved past unambiguous. What is what is the stage beyond unambiguous? I mean, it's like in 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 marble. On December well, 14th, so the, right? Well, so well, I, I suppose you could say that members of Congress don't read the electoral votes until January 6th. Right. And so which is the uh, day and, after the Georgia uh, special elections. Right. And so you could I suppose you could imagine that they could hang on until January 6th, and then the same members of Congress could, I suppose, challenge electoral votes in those readings. Um, but there, there does come a point where, um, and I actually, as I said before, I would have thought we were long past it, but there does come a point where the 
logic of the situation and the automaticity of the situation yeah, becomes uh, a, a the cognitive dissonance between what Trump wants the situation to be and the reality of what the situation is uh, uh, become a little too glaring. And I and I don't know, you know, I understand if you're Susan Collins or or Mitt Romney we're already past that situation. But I do wonder what the threshold is for others. Are they going to not show up for Biden's inauguration? <laughs> yeah, if there is an inauguration, I honestly don't know the answer to that because, you know, as 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 you walk through in, in your piece, which I strongly urge people to get because you, you look at all the various possibilities. Look, the there's always the possibility that things spin out of control, that the unthinkable becomes the thinkable, and we don't know. I tend to be, I mean, again, I'm optimistic about that the process will work through, but I'm pessimistic about the long-term consequences of all of this. And for the reasons that you you articulated before um, about the, just the, just the quality of our, of our political culture has been, for anyone who thought that we would have any pro possibility of, of healing, um, I think the damage is great. However, you, by the way, you made an another interesting point when you pointed out that we'd gone through 20 minutes of this conversation without mentioning Joe Biden's name. Can I say something positive about Joe Biden? Joe Biden is doing something really remarkable. He is actually trying to lower the temperature at a time when everybody else is running around with their hair on fire. I was actually on, on a cable show when we were talking about this and somebody from the Biden campaign was on and I should remember her name. It was Kate. And she was Every, with every moment that went by, I felt like my blood pressure was going down. So this is going to be this will be among the most important things that Joe Biden does, you know, leaving aside the policy and the legislation, just simply calming the country down, lowering the temperature, telling people, OK, we're going to solve these problems. We're going to get it done. We're optimistic. And it's still so sort of jarring to see here's a president who actually wants to get things done. And every time he opens his mouth, he's not, you know, spewing out juvenile insults. So that, that that's going to be if 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 I if I had to cling on to one sort of moment of optimism here on Friday the 13th, that is it is that Joe Biden is really he really does feel like the right man at the right time for, you know, this situation. I agree with that. I think he, uh, you know, he is relatively few people's ideal, you know, if you said who is the 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 person who most closely represents my policy views, he is not that. Uh, if you say who who is the most charismatic, you know, inspiring leader, he is for most people not that. Uh, you could go on the list, down the list of all the things he is not. But if you say who is the perfect person for this moment, the perfect antidote to Donald Trump, the perfect uh, person to maybe unsuccessfully, but to give mm -hmm. a real college try at leading the uh, a, a, an effort at national reconciliation, uh, and also to hold the public's hand through a series of concurrent crises, he is very arguably the perfect person yeah. for that role. I know I I agree. So can we just move move past Trump uh, for a moment? Talk about something else? Uh sure. Okay, I, I want to get your take on on that speech that Justice Samuel Alito gave to the Federalist Society. 
and um, this, this this is rather ex- extraordinary. Um, it 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 felt like a very very political speech. Um, he warned of dangers to free speech and religious liberty. You know, talked about the court's ruling on uh, on the gay marriage case. Um, said some rather remarkable things about uh, the the restriction, the coronavirus restrictions being a stress test for constitutional uh, liberties. I see that Harry uh, Lippman on uh, Twitter is saying as politically partisan a speech as I've ever heard from from a, a justice. Um, what, what, what was your reaction? I mean, I, I was I was I was surprised that in this particular environment, a justice of the Supreme Court would have given that hard edged and ideological speech. Yeah. So a couple things. First, uh, full disclosure, I have not read the speech yeah. itself. I have only read news coverage of it. Um, Same. Uh, and I, you know, so this is tentative having, you know, pending the speech actually being as bad as the coverage of it seems to be, mm-hmm. uh, seems to portray it as. Um, I, I found it very disappointing, honestly. Um, uh, Justice Alito is somebody who I have always, uh, you know, despite my disagreements with, uh, I've always found a uh, uh, low key um, and quite uh, intellectually serious interlocutor for ideas. He's a he's somebody whose opinions I uh, I usually find something to take quite seriously in, even when I disagree with them, which I often do. Uh, he's a justice who has sometimes persuaded me of things. Um, and um, and I also um, think he's, you know, somebody whose demeanor and temperament uh, is quite attractive among, uh, you know, particularly in contrast to some of the other justices who you know, can be bomb throwers in public. And particularly, you know, uh, uh, I admire the way, unlike Justice Scalia, he never tried to be a sort of public intellectual uh, as well as a jurist. Um, And all of that is uh, a little bit damaged by a speech like this. This is, first of all, injecting himself into matters of political controversy, not merely public controversy, in precisely a time in which we're, you know, we are actually, you know, relying on courts to be dispassionate, apolitical bodies, however fruitlessly. Um, Secondly, you know, um, uh, a lot of it, at least as I understand it from the news coverage, seems to me quite intellectually weak. I, I, I do not see the uh, great conspiracy against religious free exercise that he seems to see in the coronavirus response. And I, uh, I, I find that uh, as unpersuasive when Sam Alito talks about it as when Bill Barr talks about uh, you know, this as the greatest uh, threat to liberty since slavery or maybe including slavery. Um, so I, I – I, I find it intellectually uncompelling, and I also just find it unbefitting a justice to get up there in front of. I don't, you know, I didn't, wasn't a big admirer of, um, of uh, Justice Scalia's road shows. I was not a big admirer of 
Justice Ginsburg's um, uh, um, uh, celebrity status. And I don't really think that uh, in a highly politically charged environment, it's a good idea for justices to be out there in front of highly partisan audiences stoking yeah. flames. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm glad you, you pointed that. He, he is, he's not the first justice to come out and give sort of candid uh, you know, speeches like this that could be construed as being, the idea, uh, as being ideological. Now, I, I see one law professor who's saying that, that he's not surprised that Alito believes these things. You, don't, you only have to read his written opinions to see most of them. So a lot of this is already is very consistent with things that he's put in opinions. What is surprising is that he decided to say them in this public speech that was live streamed over the Internet um, can be recirculated forever. And that he did it in this particular moment when people are looking at the Supreme Court. Is it going to be more uh, politicized? Is it more ideological? Um, and and, and when, when there are questions out there about the legitimacy of of the court i mean our our thinking about the court is is obviously you know evolving over 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 time and we just went through one of the stress tests with the the confirmation of amy uh, coney barrett um i think it's not likely now that the court is going to make a decision about the election but you know it's isn't this one of those moments where the justices should step back and go okay in order to sort of protect our image and the institutional integrity of the supreme court there's kind of time uh, moments when we ought to stand down and stand back. And this would be one of them, which, again, that kind of struck me that he chose this moment to give this speech. Look, there are two models of modern justice behavior. Um, the extreme of one is Justice Scalia, um, which is the out there, you know, fists bared in the public arena. Uh, uh, you know, doing intellectual combat with the other side. And to varying degrees, uh, others, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Sonia Sotomayor doesn't do that, but she, you know, she wrote a memoir. Uh, um, you know, others have, others have participated in that too. It's not a, it's not a conservative justice thing. It's a temperamental thing. Are you, are the, you out there, um, the other extreme is David Souter mm -hmm. and, um, and to a lesser extent, John Roberts. You know, John Roberts makes almost no extrajudicial uh, comments except in his capacity as chief justice, right? He, um, but he basically is, he is his opinions, he is his formal statements as chief justice and uh, uh, head of the judiciary. Uh, I believe the latter model, and by the way, Elena Kagan does mm -hmm. the same thing. She mm -hmm. writes, she writes, uh, um, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, highly opinionated, very witty opinions. She can be biting in opinions, but she doesn't give speeches. She doesn't, you know, certainly doesn't go before partisan audiences. Um, I have a strong preference for the latter mode of engagement rather than uh, the uh, former mode. There are many, many ways to, you know, if you want to be a public intellectual, uh, if you want to give Jeremiah speeches about liberalism, uh, you know, there are many things to do. You can become a columnist at The Federalist. You can, you know, I'm sure Rich Lowry would give, uh, uh, at, would give Sam Alito a column, and I'm sure 
Fox News would give him a show, although he's not that uh, personally engaging, um, you know, 